welcome to the Collapse Podcast. My name's Troll. My name's Matt. And we're going to continue to be looking at Pan Am today. In the last episode, we looked at its amazing success, how it brought in the jet age and its end of its peak success in the 60s. Tripp announced his retirement. He is a force of nature in the business world. And this is important, as you'll see what happens when he leaves. He may not have always been easy to get along with. He always got his way. And as you can imagine, this may have left a trail of bad blood. Mm -hmm. And it did not end with Pan Am when he stepped down. And this is going to carry over through this story. So let's take a quick look at what we're going to be doing today. We're going to take a look at his successors. I think from the for till the airline collapses in 1991, there are five CEOs, and we're going to get That's through a, a few lot of, of them CEOs. Today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, some leadership change ups. Talk about talent say. attrition. Yeah, we're going to take a look at that. And the next few years, are pr- there's a lot happening, so we're kind of going to go back and forth in time just a little bit to kind of look through all these different things that are happening simultaneously, and we're ultimately going to end up getting through about three CEOs here and get us through the next 10 to 15 years. So here we go. So okay, where do we leave off trip? He's in a boardroom. He just announced he's retiring. And there's two people there that were aware of this and were ready and are his successors. The first, his name is Harold Gray. And the second Najee Halaby, who will just be referred to as Halaby for the rest of the podcast. So we'll start with Najee Halaby. We're going to go back here a little bit. He was an alumni of Stanford University, graduated in 1937, and he went to Yale Law School. Hmm. He served as a U.S. Navy test pilot during World War II. And on May 1st, 1945, he made history by making the first transcontinental jet flight in U.S. history. So from coast to co- east to west coast. Okay, cool. Halaby took off, and let's see, he took the flight in five hours and 40 minutes, which is kind of right about, we've talked, so he's the first person doing a jet, and we kind of talked about it's about five hours, and this basically right. matches that. After the war, and he did that, he served in the U.S. State Department Civil Aviation Department. He was an advisor to the King of Saudi Arabia, and he helped the king develop the Saudi Arabian Airlines. After that, he worked as an aide to the Secretary of Defense in the late 40s, and then President Kennedy appointed him to the head of the FAA in 1961. He was there for a few years, and he did some interesting things. Uh, Parachute jumps were becoming big at this time, and they were talking about whether it should be regulated or not, so he felt that the best way to do it was to do go skydiving himself. Mm. And... He said, yep, it should be regulated. <laughs> <laughs> Had to experience it first before he figured out that it needed some some sort of a seatbelt yeah, on there. <laughs> and I, I think that's a great way to do it. Yeah. yeah. He also desegregated all of the U.S. air terminals. So a nice step in the civil rights movement for him. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So the next part of the story, this is where he really starts to meet Trip, and he becomes integral to Pan Am. So he met Tripp when Kennedy... So in the last episode, I talked about supersonic transport in the Concorde. And all I really said was that Kennedy didn't fund the program. And that was that. Mm-hmm. There's a little more detail of that. And this is how he's introduced to Halaby. I'd wanted to keep it here for this episode so it would tie into the story a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So Tripp wanted to have Concorde. And he was willing to go over to France and buy them there. Kennedy and the Kennedy administration wanted him to wait until they made a decision. And they asked him, please don't announce anything until we make our decision on whether we're going to fund it or not. And Tripp said, okay. So, word got out that Tripp had signed a deal with the French to buy Concorde, which the Kennedy administration... I wonder who got the word out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, in this, so the Kennedy administration just went straight to Trip, and so Halaby was tasked with going over and scolding him 
Uh, he waited for Trip to come out of his office and he came out and Hallaby said, you know, why did you leak this? You specifically told us and gave us your word that you were going to. And Trip was smiling and gave him a handshake and said, I didn't leak anything. The The French leaked the deal. He goes, that's on them. I kept my part. I didn't say anything. <laughs> so from his side, everything was fine. Uh, Hallaby wasn't thrilled, but he picked up the phone. He called the White House. He had Kennedy on in a few seconds. And Kennedy wasn't impressed and said... And told Trip, we will remember this. Hmm. But the big takeaway from this was Trip was happy. His stunt worked for the moment the Kennedy administration was going to fund supersonic transport. And it won. And on top of that, he saw this Halby fellow. He had the president on the line in just a few seconds. He wanted this guy in his corner to help lobby for him in Washington. Remember, at this point in time... The aviation industry is regulated, and part of that means political power is economic power, is business power. So, Trip was happy. And this is another tie-in, then, to your your comment earlier about knowing the right people. It's all about knowing the right people. And he thinks if he knows Halaby, if he has access to the president's ear, that's power. And that's worth paying for. And he does. You'll see this. So, Halaby left the FAA. And Tripp requested him to come on as a senior vice president. He tossed in a pretty good salary, $87,000 a year. Not too shabby, which translates to a little over $800,000 in today's money. Wow. With a sign-on bonus of 50000 so almost 500000 sign-on bonus. Phew. Not bad. Not bad at all. No, he's doing okay. He was hailed as the heir apparent. The other exec- airline executives within Pan Am weren't thrilled. They felt like he wasn't an airline man. As we saw in his brief bio here, he does have aviation experience. Right, right. He may not be from the grounds up in Pan Am or another airline, but he is not a novice coming in. So this is really just a case of them feeling threatened that their ability to uh, ascend the throne, if you will, um, is being thwarted by this outsider. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So... They blocked him from the data operations. Trip may have brought him in. He might be a senior VP, but it doesn't mean he's going to actually work here in any uh, meaningful manner. So they relegate him to overseeing the helicopter business. And he dubbed himself vice president of miscellaneous. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good title. Uh, yeah, I thought so. However, uh, a few weeks later, Trip gave him a call and said, hey, I have a problem in Washington. I need you to fix it. And that's when Hallaby realized, oh, that's that's my real job. I'm just the lobbyist mm-hmm. for Pan Am. But that's okay. He's doing very well. He's in Pan Am. He's the heir apparent. It's okay. So let's talk. And that brings us up to where we are with him in the boardroom. He's vice president, senior vice president of miscellaneous. The next person is Hale Gray. He is a Pan Am veteran. He was the 10th pilot hired at Pan Am. He was 23 years old. He has a degree in aeronautical engineering. And by 32, he's the chief pilot of the Atlantic Division. And then he became the vice president of the Pacific Alaska Division. And he was the first individual to make it profitable without government subsidies. That's pretty big. It, that's a, he that's, is a big deal. That's a pretty big accomplishment. Yeah, this is good. You can already see. I mean, he finished. You could see why he could be considered a successor. There's a few companies nowadays I won't name that are still relying on government subsidy. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't quite figured it out yet. (laughs) But Uh, I digress. Yeah. Then he, they took him, they said, wow, you did a great job over there. Come on over to the Atlantic Division. And he did the same thing there. He was also seen as an honest man, which was a step above the deviousness of the other executives. So that's great. He believed, and this is in contrast to trip to a little bit he believed hard work produced good results okay Mm -hmm. and good results spoke for themselves that's good Uh, there was no need to sweet talk people in washington you know pan am had this beautiful mansion in washington that was purely for entertainment for lobbying getting the politicians on their side and a vote Mm -hmm. their way he felt that if pan am was the best most efficient airline that would win people over not favors that's that's a nice thought, except, again, in an age of regulation where most of 
the power of, to approve routes and prices is from politicians. <laughs> Maybe not the best approach. Tripp really wanted Halaby, but he knew the board and the other executives weren't real thrilled with that. So he came up with this hybrid approach. And I will say, we're going to talk about succession planning here. His plan is not a bad one. You know, do you dis, should you take points away because they had a good plan and it failed or someone had a bad plan and it happened to work out? It's really hard to say, but his plan is sound. And unfortunately, once he makes the decision, he doesn't have much power after that. Hmm. So we'll see what unfolds. So this was his original plan. He was going to let Harold Gray be the CEO with Halaby underneath him. He thought he could set up Gray's operational sense with Halaby's political salary. And Halaby could take a few years and learn underneath Gray. And then Halaby would eventually take over. And he thought this is perfect. We'll just combine these two great traits, work them up a little bit. It's going to be a great successor. What do you think? I see potential conflict in the same way that you know, these other insiders who are veterans of the of, of the company are already upset at, you know, um, Halaby. And I can't see this going any different with Gray. You know, he's he's been there since essentially the dawn of the company. You know, why would he why would he agree to essentially training his own successor? <laughs> you number know? one and number two, Halaby is essentially a lobbyist and political. And he hates lobbyists in politics. Right. Yeah, that that too. <laughs> so those two things combined, you know, I don't see that going well. I, I'm not sure how Trip, for all of his um, foresight, was able to miss that. Unless it's just senioritis, you know, you're ready to get out. <laughs> maybe. Or maybe he hoped his wishes would happen. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, as you can imagine... Uh, Halaby, his role didn't change, except he went to Washington a little bit less. He was still just vice president of miscellaneous. But Trip is gone. So now Pan Am has to deal with its first problems without him. And the first problems they were starting to have was planes were crashing a lot. I mean, Pan Am was crashing three times the rate of other airlines at this point in time. Wow. And if your entire business model is fearing people, crashing your product is it's not a good look. And remind me and the listeners, they're the only ones using the jets right now? No, others are, or, are start I mean, they're starting to get in there, but yeah. Okay. I'm just wondering if it was... I mean, a, they are yeah. definitely the largest, mm -hmm. for sure, but not necessarily the only one. Okay. So I'm going to give you a, a, just a few of the top crashes that happened here. Some of them, by the way, is not like this one is not their fault. Uh, in December eighth, nineteen sixty three, there was a sh airplane that was struck by lightning, and the fuel tank exploded, killing everybody on board. Wow! And it was because of that that lightning discharge wicks were installed on all aircrafts after that incident. There was another one here that. There was likely an optical illusion created by these city lights on this upslope, and they crashed. And then in 1971, there was another one that just struck a mountain. They were reading their uh, their instruments wrong, mm. and they crashed. There was, um, I forgot where it was. I think it was an explanation of one of those, what is that, Bermuda Triangle. A pilot who was talking about seeing a UFO above him, seeing lights above him before he cut out and crashed. And so there was a whole investigation into it. And one of the main leading theories of that is that he had that disorientation, but he was upside down and looking at his own light's reflections in the water. So this is like some oh. weird disorienting stuff that can happen to you in these. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So in a one, less than a one year period from July, 1973 to April, 1974, they had five planes crash. Wow. And the list is, I mean, that was the most in a period of time, but there were more crashes. I just tried to pick out a few of them. And like you were saying, this orientation from the previous episode, I couldn't remember the name of that phenomenon, but it's called the black hole syndrome. Hmm. And the pilots wouldn't believe their instruments. Then they got disoriented and they would just crash. 
So not a great look for an airline. Right. The FAA got involved. They did a very long investigation. Lots of people were let go and replaced. Many in training. And there was a new culture that was developed because of this. They had another thing that they created called standards because of this. <laughs> yeah. Standards were not a thing. I mean, they were in some aspects, but uh, not in others. I'm going to give you an example. There, you remember the term sky gods. These pilots mm-hmm. have been doing this a very long time. They all flew differently. One wouldn't f- would fly a, a hundred feet altitude difference because the the air is less turbulent there. And I'm guessing okay. that was based on a feeling, his, his own yeah. opinion. Yeah. Or they would only fly around the world in one direction, so the sun was only on the first officer's side. Yeah. So all these little things. It's such a they, petty thing to... Yeah. <laughs> they nicked, and they said, everybody's going to fly the same way every time. Yeah. None of these little deviations here. Another thing they developed was something called the crew concept. And this is where, I mean, underneath the current model, what the captain said went. You didn't disobey the captain. Whatever he said, you just did. Mm -hmm. You couldn't even think unless the captain asked you to do so. The crew concept turned this around and said, everybody has a voice and can say something and speak up for safety. Uh, A revolutionary thing at the time And so after this big change happened, Pan Am really did become very safe. There weren't nearly as many crashes after this. And this crew model did start to translate over to other airlines. So, crisis averted, perhaps? I wouldn't say it averted. I mean, Mm -hmm. they went through all these crashes. I guess they just weathered the crisis. They didn't avert it. Yeah, crisis mitigation, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first major issue. Uh, Did they... Weather it, uh, more or less, I'd say. I mean, they're still around. So a quick question on that before you move on. What did what was the effect on how often flights were booked through them, even after they, they fixed it? Did they see a significant drop? Did it return? Did it like rebound afterward? Couldn't tell you. Okay. All I know is that it did affect their bookings, but I couldn't tell you exact numbers okay. and how many. Yeah. Well, there were probably no standards to keep track of it. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the next thing. So that crisis is over. Now this is the next one. People were starting to look at the airline and some things just didn't make sense. They were having flights to places and the, the planes were empty. They added a new route in 1968 to Moscow, a direct flight, which if you Oh, history direct. a little bit. The cult, a direct flight to Moscow from the United States in 1968, which is part of the Cold War. And as you can imagine, there there weren't a lot of takers on that flight. I bet. So people were starting to ask questions, and they got a pretty universal answer that is, again, used to this day. They just said, you don't see the big picture. <laughs> okay. So they're having... Empty planes. So the pilots were asking these questions, but they got distracted by another issue. Furloughs. There was a new technology that had come out called the Doppler navigation system. So navigators on planes weren't needed anymore. So flight navigators used to spend hours looking over maps and weather forecasts. They had to plot the best route. And once the plane was in the air, they had to rely on features in the sky and the ground to keep the plane on course. Mm-hmm. Now, for instance, early navigators would use railroads and rivers to find out when it was time to make a turn. So mm. they were on all planes. And now with these new systems, they're leaving. So furlough is starting to happening so all of a sudden the worries about the routes didn't matter they were just worried about keeping a job right they'd rather fly a fixed cost with no one on it right (laughs) yeah to the ussr and then lose their job oh absolutely yeah this is one this is a small thing you'll see that the disgruntled employees does become a bigger issue this is just one of those things uh, just one more mm-hmm. tick in that box there. There was another issue. 
which is Pan Am is losing its monopoly over its Pacific flight routes. Other airlines, you know, like American Airlines, they were doing this through hard work, business savvy, creative. Nope. They spent a lot of money on lobbying and winning political <laughs> favor, which is the currency currently in this climate uh, during regulation. And this is where campaign contributions flowed into political coffers. There were a few reasons. Pan Am used to be and used to have a lot of political power, and that's waning. You have Trip that's gone, and he was very much in favor of having that power. So mm-hmm. the current Gray does not believe in that. That's one. But there are secondary reasons. One is that Pan Am is headquartered in New York, and the senators from New York, they don't really have a reason to, they have no reason to entertain or win political or f- favor with Pan Am. There's so many large companies in New York. However, companies like Delta in Georgia, or American Airlines in Texas, they were very large companies for those states, and so they had much more sway over the politicians to vote their way mm. in their states. So that's one issue. I'm assuming Harold is probably putting a bit of a, a leash on... on uh... Political spending? Yeah, political spending yeah. and lobbying. You know. Yeah, I don't think he's doing anything. So other airlines, like I said, are taking over or not taking over, but they're competing for routes with Pan Am. Yet Pan Am is not able to have any domestic routes. They're being blocked whenever they ask for them. The other airlines convince Congress that doing so would cause Pan Am to have a monopoly. And so they continue to get denied these routes, yet they are losing theirs. And so 1969, we have not moved very far from when Tripp has retired, by the way. I know we're kind of, yeah. There's a lot happening. Uh, there's a lot of time. But in 1969, they had their first loss, 12.9 million in the first two quarters, and they didn't give, it, give out a dividend the first time in 30 years. So while this is definitely not the crack that breaks Pan Am, it is the first real crack that they have and that they show. Hmm. One of the reasons that Pan Am ordered the 747s was their planes were full. And they saw an increase in demand, so they wanted a bigger plane to fulfill that. They predicted that the airline industry would grow by 17.5% a year, and it's only growing at 1.5%. Now, they can't keep these 707s full, let alone a plane that's twice that size. Right. Gray, he really wanted to leave. He was not having this job. But he didn't want to leave before making the airline profitable. However... He was running out of time. He had cancer. Mm. Bad. And he didn't tell anybody. He really did want to make the airline profitable, but his successor wasn't trained enough. I wonder why. Right. Uh, and even though, so before I did say he was, he went back to the VP of miscellaneous. That was incorrect. He was actually the president of the company now, but yet he was still seen as an obstacle in the company. Mm-hmm. And he was still excluded. He was definitely not taken underneath Gray's wing. However, it didn't matter. Gray was too sick. He had to retire. He announced this in November 1969. He was not CEO very long. And during his tenure, the only positive thing I would say came out of that was the crew concept. Maybe a little bit. And the development of standards, culture. right? Yep. But yeah. again, you can't really say that's his. True. That is true. To take because the FAA came in and demanded him. So, but it's okay. We have a new CEO, Hallaby. Uh, to, to kick this off, I'm going to start with a quote that he had when he took over. He said, it was like trying to bail out a sinking ocean liner with a sand pail. <laughs> <laughs> we can see where he thinks that Pan Am is going mm-hmm. as he looks back on his career. So, so, 1969 is here. He may have not been seen as an airline man to insiders, but as we talked about before, he was a pilot in the Navy, and when the Boeing 747 was being produced, he actually flew it himself. I mean, he is a pilot. However, the inaugural flight of the 747 didn't go too well. Uh, they had some issues with it. The Whitney JT-9D engine... It had a had a pretty bad trait. 
the engine would stall. That's a bad trait. <laughs> that, yeah. And it went into production this way. So in short, when a jet engine stalls, it means that there's an interruption of flow of the air from the front compressor section to the back, which was where the turbine was. And did they know about this when they, as they were, as it was leaving production? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, oh boy, uh, this was happening on a daily basis. Apparently it would, oh. the little quote I found was it would make flight engineers soil their pants and passengers scream and faint. It could stall silently from time to time, which means basically the instrument gauges would, you know, start throwing up flares. Uh, mm-hmm. However, it would also shoot out 20 foot flames and rock the aircraft. Nice. Yeah. And this is happening daily with passengers on the plane. And a little thing here that says bookings on these dropped <laughs> significantly. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, I'm sure they did. Yeah. 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 If there was any a- rebound from the previous, uh, flub then uh this is this is definitely <laughs> not gonna help yeah boeing pan am and the engine maker pratt and whitney they all knew this was happening they all pinned blame at each other and pan am was threatening to take away payments from boeing which boeing needed those payments you remember how much of a loan they took mm-hmm. to get this something going so they definitely couldn't take that so they're all just passing around the blame i did find another quote that i really liked because even though that this is happening and it's definitely not a great experience, I think this quote does sum up what ends up happening. You know, progress is the art of getting out of trouble you wouldn't have been in if it was not for progress. I'm thinking about that one. <laughs> <laughs> you think about it. I mean, now no one has any issues. It sounds really nice, but it seems like, like they're coping a little bit. <laughs> sure. So... They're dealing with that. Halaby comes in. Halaby wasn't Trip. He's not gray. He was a little different. For one, no one is really afraid of him. You know, Trip was feared. He ruled that company. Gray was efficient, and he was an insider. People respected him. Halaby was a really nice guy. That's about all he had going for him. He was already had this negative bias against him. And Halaby had this desire, he wanted to be liked, and he wanted to see harmony among his staff. He did some pretty great things. I mean, he would fly economy, he would listen to his customers' complaints, try to improve the Pan Am customer service. He would have one-on-one meetings with flight attendants. He smiled a lot. He was very nice. Uh, Management and the executives... They couldn't handle this change in culture. They were quoted as saying, it's just not the way things are supposed to be. Yeah, we don't like to think about the customer. Yeah. <laughs> it is during this time that the company really starts to fracture culturally. Hmm. It's unity inside. The departments and the VPs start to squabble. Halaby started to introduce a lot of changes. The result of this, 30 executives left in the first two years. And he replaced them mostly with outsiders. Another change, and this one's interesting, was something he created called the Office of the President Approach. But I'd never heard of this before. He had four vice presidents, and they would share power and act in unison to act as an executive operational unit underneath him. What do you think of that? If some, if you got pitched that idea would you think okay you have a company that is not unified so you take four heads essentially four vps i don't see them getting along yeah i feel like what that's going to do is just highlight the culture war that's happening inside the company yeah this didn't work it just ended up being managed by committee and just added another layer of bureaucracy Mm-hmm. Uh, in the meantime, Pan Am's losses continued to mount. One of the issues which we briefly talked about was they didn't have any domestic routes. Now, in exchange for this monopoly in international travel, Pan Am said they wouldn't take any domestic routes. Now, that's starting to bite them. Their monopoly is broken. American Airlines and foreign airlines are taking some of these routes. However, the company still being trained is an international company. It was barred from these domestic flights. Mm-hmm. And every time they applied, they would get shut down. So, 
Halby said, this needs to be solved. So he pulled out his notebook and he said, okay, plan one, let's merge with the domestic airline. Let's just stop trying to get these routes. Let's just merge with a company that already has them. So he talked to America, American, Delta, United, Eastern. Unfortunately, none of them panned out. He did talk to one that was interested, Transworld Airline, TWA. They were also in bad shape. However, their domestic routes, they would pay pair very well with Pan Am. And between the two of them, they thought they could make a pretty efficient company. So this merger would need to have antitrust clearance from the Justice Department. This was during the Nixon administration. Mm. They met with the White House. They seemed to have a very positive response from them. And they said, you'll have an answer in 60 days. 10 days went by, nothing. 30 days, nothing. They reached out and they said, don't worry, we'll get back to you. They never got back. The Nixon administration decided that they didn't want to go on record making a decision on this. So they made no decision so that it would just lapse and the merger wouldn't happen. I see. Yeah. Nixon had no love for Pan Am. Uh, If we remember talking about the political contributions list, Pan Mm -hmm. Am was missing from that. But you know who was not missing? American Airlines. Sure. Uh. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you decide not to play the game. Yes. So that plan failed. He goes, okay. Plan number two. Let's move Pan Am headquarters to Dallas, Virginia. It's close to D.C. The rent is cheaper. New York doesn't care about Pan Am because there's so many other companies there. Virginia might care a little bit more. They might have a little more sway with the senators. New York City had the most expensive rent in the nation. There were a lot of labor unions there. Vendors were controlled by the mob, charging exorbitant prices. It just made sense to move headquarters. Let's start over. And over time, more political power could probably be had. This idea never left the boardroom. The other executive <laughs> said, New York City is the city. This quote, this is where Pan Am belongs. End quote. And these are the VPs under this office of the president? The, those guys? This is the, the board, like Just, the board of directors. Oh, the board of directors. This. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That's not happening. So he had this, a pretty, not too bad plans in that situation i mean merging with another airline that's yeah that's a good way to go moving the headquarters another great way to save some money Uh, so he's not doing bad he's just being stifled and stiffed by the board here Mm -hmm. who is most likely probably just afraid of change and, and feeling like dulles is less prestigious overall of a location you know I mean, the the phrase, this is where Pan Am belongs, says nothing strategic to me. It says everything about, you know, um, prestige and historic, you know, actions. This is where we've always been. This is what we've always done. This is where we belong. This is it. Yeah, we Tra- don't want to change. Traditional case of not wanting to change. Yeah, which is also the number one reason why businesses fail. Right. However, Pan Am is not there. So, he had those two ideas. Here comes the next issue lobbed at him here. They call themselves the faded aristocracy. They These people, they were middle managers. They'd been with the company for decades. So, they want, like the board, they liked things as the status quo as well. Mm-hmm. Halaby wanted new ideas to come into the company. He realized, listen, we're not making money. We're stagnant. We need to have new ideas. So he started to bring in outsiders. Uh, and they had a name for this. They called it MBA syndrome. <laughs> oh, we are well aware with this, aren't we? Yes, yes. Very acquainted. Young, <laughs> they had these young kids with business degrees who had never worked in an airline, but they knew everything about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't that? Yeah. Uh, this is yeah. This is a very familiar story. <laughs> yeah, one director said that most of these kids were kicked out pretty quick, but their ideas screwed up operations for years. Uh, they didn't give too many examples of what these were. They gave one, and you can get the sense that these directors 
They don't want anything to change. They're very set in their ways. Very manly, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of their ideas was to have sensitivity training by psychologists for their leaders. It's not a bad idea, per se. However, you can imagine how they took that. Right, yeah. I would love to hear what some of their other ideas were. I'd be curious to see, are they actually bad ideas that ruin the company? Or they just took it as just these are, they don't want it. Uh, yeah, I, I in the case of these kinds of things, I think the truth always lies somewhere in the middle, right? So there probably yeah. were some really bad ideas that came out of these MBA grads. But then on the flip side, you know, being called the faded aristocracy and like having these just sticking to tradition, uh, whether it's going to kill you or not, you know, I, I could definitely see a few good ideas being floated through that are shot down simply because they deviate from the norm. Just like, just like the move to Virginia was shot down because it was different from how we've done it. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, do you remember those engine problems with the 747? Oh, yeah. They're, they're still happening. They haven't gone away yet. They still haven't solved it. <laughs> Um, they do get solved eventually. They find out what the issue is. Um, but at this point in time, it's still not good. Uh, the board of directors and Halaby knew the company needed strong leadership. I like to think in parentheses, they just say, we want someone who does what we want. Right. We don't want other ideas. Just bring in somebody that can just lash the whip. Mm-hmm. So. They formed a committee, and they found the perfect candidate, Bill Sewell. He was an Air Force general, retired. He was a senior VP at American Airlines, his current position before he came on here. He was the current president of Rolls-Royce Aero in North America. This guy is the exact opposite of Hallaby. Imagine... Actually, he almost looked like a silver fox. However, his demeanor, I think of the general in World War II with a cigar, Mm -hmm. and he likes to put out the cigar on his forearm before he throws it in the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So he came on in. The plan was to have Sewell run operations in the day-to-day while Halaby focused on global strategy. Not a terrible plan. Listen, you can get a little bit of the Halaby you can get the Sewell to run the day-to-day. It started well, but it didn't take long before the men started to bunt heads. And in 1971, the company lost $35 million and their debt was over a billion in 1965 dollars. By March 22nd, the board had a special session and Hallaby was out. Bill Sewell is now the CEO what year did you say that was? 1971. Wow. Just, just, I'm just just looking back on all that you just covered, all the drama that took place. And it's been like, what, four years, three years? (laughs) Very, very short amount of time. Yeah, there's a lot that's happened. That's incredible. Yeah. Tripp retired in 1968. In the middle of 1968. We have not gotten very far from Trip. Wow. And this company is floundering. Really hell in a handbasket, like, is the most appropriate description of what's happening here. Yeah. And now, Sewell has taken over. Someone was quoted as saying, it was like falling asleep next to Snow White and waking up next to Godzilla. (laughs) Yeah, he was tough and even cruel. He would have temper tantrums. He was not easygoing. However, the pilots were happy. You have this retired general in the Air Force that is taking over this airline. They were overall happy. Sure, he might be a little tough, but but that's what we need to get through this crisis. So, he was given one order by the board of directors. Fix the company. So. It's a tall order. It is a tall order. So I'm going to list off. Here's his little uh, whiteboard of ideas. Or issues, I should say. So here's some of the issues Pan Am had. 
they would have a large amount of staff for one route. It was quoted as saying that Pan Am didn't have a station. They had embassies. Too many employees. Mm. The company had almost as many vice, pre- uh, vice presidents as secretaries. <laughs> I get another quote. Being a VP at Pan Am was like being a Kentucky colonel. <laughs> <laughs> so they really watered down the meaning of being a vice president. Yes, very much so. And they're expensive. Right. Yeah, you're going to keep paying all these guys the same amount, but having what I assume to be relatively redundant positions. Yeah, so he vastly shrunk the VP position, and he cut employment from 42000 to 27. A big cut. And this is my favorite problem that Pan Am had. They said that the accounting was almost non-existent. One could not tell where the company was losing money. They simply took in all the money they could and saw how much was left over. See, I told you there was no standard. Remember I said that earlier? No (laughs) no standard. standard. (laughs) I could imagine the CEO is is looking at new routes and he goes, yeah, you know what? Maybe we should take a look and and buy a plane for this route. Let me go over to the CFO's office and he schedules a meeting and the CEO just picks up all these papers all over the room and just like tries to hastily put them on his desk in unorganized stacks. And he comes in and he goes, uh, uh, we've got this new route we want to do. I think it'll cost you know $5 million. Do you think that that's something that we could swing? And he just takes the top piece of paper off, and it's his lunch order from earlier that day. Kind of squints at it a little bit. and uh, Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fine. Where's it going? It uh, USSR? <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we should be able to swing that. That's fine. <laughs> it was bad. Oh, bad. my goodness. How do you get that far and have no accounting? Like very little accounting. I don't know. I didn't go down that rabbit hole. I went down so many others, uh, but it was bad. Maybe that's one of the MBA suggestions. They're like, maybe we should have accounting. And they were like, wow, it's fine. We've been, <laughs> we've been doing it this way for years. <laughs> we're, we're making money. That's all we need to know. You're fired, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so some other things he did to increase profitability here. He reduced the amount of non-profitable routes. Okay, that's fair. He closed, oh yeah, closing the bases were estimated to save about $15 million a year. Ironically, when the bases were originally opened, it was proclaimed by management that they would also save $15 million a year. And it was, there was a pilot that was quoted as saying, imagine the money we're saving. Between opening and closing the bases, we're saving $30 million for each one. Now that's good management. Pan <laughs> <laughs> has no idea what they're that doing right so now. That is so funny. Uh, oh, I mean, they're so disorganized. It's, it's sad, but it's funny. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Instant so, profitability. Just keep closing and opening them, right? Exactly. Beyond thirty million, yeah. Just keep doing it. It must be nice, yeah. to live in that world. Yeah. Okay, so things aren't looking terrible. He's made some pretty drastic changes. He's cut the overhead a lot. Mm. And then there's another disaster. Not Pan Am's fault. Uh, I will say, in in October 1973, the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Companies, OPEC, declared an oil embargo, including the United States, and it rose the price of oil by 400%. Mm. I was reading some of my sources, and a few of them said that this hit Pan Am harder than other airlines because of its long-haul flights, as you you know, they're inter- international instead of domestic flights because right. they require more fuel and it costs more. I-, I couldn't get into the numbers. I would look at, you know, cost per mile because it doesn't matter if you're doing a hundred short trips or one long trip. I mean, you really have to look at how much is this costing per mile. So that could, it mm-hmm. could really cost more. However, if you are a traveler and you want to go to Europe and the ticket costs you 3000 and now all of a sudden it's costing you nine thousand. You're much less li- much less likely to take that trip as opposed to a right. hundred dollar flight to a three hundred dollar flight. Right. Yeah. So I, I I mean I'll say we'll do our little thing. We'll just meet in the middle there. Yeah. Because yeah. these prices didn't just affect Pan Am. Well, and I would I would hope that as you said he closed non profitable routes and he's he has hopefully put a halt to empty flights. You know, moving, because that's a big loss, just sending empty planes places with a 400% increase. But it's okay. The losses were so bad 
that they could apply for subsidies from the government to weather this storm. Pan Am is still carrying this bad blood, along with the uh, political coffers being filled by their rivals, and uh, their requests were ignored and denied. It's okay, there's a new administration. It was denied. (laughs) Yeah, here's another quote, you know. Uh, The explanation seemed to be that Pan Am, by its very arrogance, had poisoned the political waters. Washington was awash with old Pan Am enemies, Democrats, Republicans, bureaucrats, lobbyists for competitors who still nurse grudges about Pan Am and its high-handed ways. But the Nixon White House had a more specific reason. The name of Pan Am had been conspicuously missing from the list of contributors to President Nixon's re-election campaign. In the post-Watergate revelations, two other airlines, Braniff and American, would be charged with making illegal contributions to the campaign, as it turned out. Each of the airlines had received generous new route authority on Pan Am routes from the Nixon administration. On Pan Am routes? Yes. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, To be enemies with Democrats, Republicans, bureaucrats, and lobbyists, and competitors, that's a pretty closed door in Washington, I'd say. So as you can imagine, they did not get any of the subsidies they asked for. And the airlines were still saying the reason Pan Am shouldn't have domestic routes is due to a monopoly that they may have. That's, uh, I would say that's actually a fair, I mean, if you put the lobbying and everything aside, preventing that type of monopoly, you know, I could see that, but at the same time, they are struggling. (laughs) They are. So I don't know, you know, if it would be necessarily a monopoly. Absolutely. And it's not like they're merging with another large airline to just be trying to create domestic routes. Pan Am is not the number one largest airline in the United States. United and American are both larger. Right. So they're just setting up a false case against them for for Monopoly. Yeah. 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 It helps when you fill some pockets. It's amazing how much better, how much more sense your case makes to the senators. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they have accounting for uh, where those contributions go. (laughs) Yeah. And there was a senator that, said let the uh, again that he was against pan am you know uh have starting to have domestic flights and he said let the invisible hand of free enterprise do its work by invisible hand you mean uh <laughs> extensive lobbying from competitors right uh, barring them from free enterprise in the united states sure yeah yeah, yeah you can let free enterprise do its work that's yeah, there's an invisible ironic. hand, all right, but it is definitely not the the economy. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of ironic bells going off right there. Yeah. However, there was a government that wanted to help. In fact, they wanted to buy a large stake in Pan Am. This was Iran. Really? I I think that's what's. The U.S. Senate said when they heard yeah. this, too. <laughs> Come again? <laughs> yeah. Investors were thrilled. Here you have this government. Uh, the Wall Street Journal was quoted as saying, Pan Am, Pan American World Airways is saved. Its existence now seems assured for many years, and it may even turn a profit this year, thanks to some special circumstances. Uh, there were, you know, the White House was a little concerned about this deal. But they ultimately let it move forward. Really? Believe it or not. At this point in time, Iran and the United States were on good terms. Yeah. Hmm. As you can imagine, uh, the congressmen, backed by other rival airlines, didn't care for this deal and they didn't want it to go through, but it did. So, why does Iran want Pan Am? So, let's just kind of look at the deal here. Pan Am would get this. So Iran would foot a $245 million loan, which bought back the company's outstanding loans at 51 cents in the dollar. Mm. Uh, Yeah. So why are insurance companies taking, because this is mostly insurance companies and banks. Why are they taking this deal? Uh, Because Pan Am is really not doing well. They knew their chances of getting, if they didn't take this deal, uh, the odds of them getting their money back was like 0%. They would get $0 back. Right. So they said, well, we'd rather get half our investment back rather than nothing. 
and a little uh, tie in here. The Lehman Brothers were the primary negotiators with the lending institutions, the a possible future series here. Uh, so Iran also bought a majority stake of the intercontinental hotel chain. Haven't heard from them in a little while. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Iran. So that's what they would get. Essentially, Pan Am would get an infusion of cash and their debts would be eliminated. Iran would get a seat on the board, the ability to buy 13% of the company's shares, and access to a huge network of air routes, also technology that Pan Am has. And even though it says that the political power of that board member would be limited, once you're there, and over time, I'm sure they could probably expand that. And... Iran got a global hotel chain. Right. And I was going to ask, I mean, not to jump ahead, I guess, but do they still have ties to IHG? Uh, Let me, I'll I'll get to the end of this and it'll answer your question. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Iran was also interested in ordering Concords and they would allow Pan Am to fly them. So Iran would now become the leader in aviation, or at least one of them with this. Gotcha. So, uh, news, and I read a few news articles from this time that kept saying, you know, it's just a few weeks away, and this deal is going to be signed, and Pan Am is going to be saved. It was always just one week away. Six months later, it was still a week away, and it fizzled out. It never happened. Oh. So, but they never ended up making their, their investment. That answers that a lot of questions. <laughs> Yeah, that regime was overthrown four years later, and it's now hostile to America. I have no clue what would happen if it was owned by Iran or had Iran. Iran had its fingers in Pan Am, and then they were hostile to America. I don't know how that would go down, but that's not what happened. Do you know why it fell through? Was it due to political instability brewing over there? Yeah, yep. Their oil revenues went down 15%, and the country was starting to curb its investments. Hmm. Yeah, and then they were overthrown. Uh, After this event, Pan Am got a nickname. I was trying to think to myself, how many companies do you know have nicknames? I can't think of many, and I definitely can't think of positive ones. Uh, This one is definitely not a positive nickname. They were now referred to on Wall Street as the financially troubled Pan Am. Not not a particularly sick burn, but I would say... Probably the worst thing you could be called as a company, <laughs> in terms of its <laughs> meaning, anyway. <laughs> it's not looking good. Yeah. And that is where we are going to end today. Next week, we're going to see... This only took us up to 1973. Like, we did not get very far. Right. Yeah, we've only, we've only been a couple of years out, basically, from trip being gone. Yeah, we have a lot left to cover, and we're going to see how Pan Am recovers from this, if they recover, what their employees do about this, and we're going to talk about the deregulation of the airlines and how Pan Am gets some domestic flights, because of course they don't have domestic flights, that's what's causing their problems. So next time, we will discuss those. Hey everybody, Matt here. Uh, That's the end of the narrative portion of the podcast, but Joel and I are going to discuss for just a few minutes a couple of things. If you're just interested in the narrative portion of the podcast, uh, you can feel free to skip this part and wait for our next one to come out. But if you are interested in the discussion that we're going to have, feel free to enjoy. If I was prepared to discuss in case we, we did, you know, that culture is like one of the most difficult things to change in a company. And when we talk, yeah, yeah, when we talk about, um, I guess we can just talk about this now. I don't know. Yeah. And just throw it in there. But, you know, when you mentioned culture, two, two things. So no one feared Halaby, right? And, you know, the culture was a very sort of toxic culture toward any type of innovation, um, new ideas. And just, you know, I was thinking about a lot of other companies, particularly one um was uh, Siemens. I remember when I was in <laughs> yeah. business school doing a, a case study on them and the the ethical issues that they faced 
And one of the major problems was that it was this ethical issue was a cultural issue. And, you know, um, a lot of the, I mean, they did turn it around, but a lot of people, you know, were saying that culture is the most difficult thing to change. And the, I think the new CEO that they put in there, if I remember correctly, he had this saying, which was um, tone from the top, Yep. you know, so I have to set the tone. I have to set the cultural tone and that's got a cascade for me all the way through the company. Uh, that's the only way we're going to make this cultural change. I think, and you might say, well, Hallaby was in that position, but I don't know, despite mm-hmm. him trying to cr- bring innovation in and get new ideas, I don't know how well he did at being an advocate for culture change, if that makes sense. You know? Yes. So there's that and his other executives were not on board. And even if he was truly pushing for that, they would have hamstrung him in every opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that mix of you're trying to set the tone and you also need, I feel like buy-in is not exactly the right word because that's just trying to it make it sound like you're trying to make people believe something, but you need genuine support from those people. Um, and that could be really difficult to do, especially if they're decades set in their ways. Yeah. Um, you know, you can go in and change technology, you can change work processes, you can change all kinds of things, but culture is very difficult to change in a company. Um, yeah. And I, I also just, I wanted to mention how funny I thought it was that Halby's trying all these different things and He's, you know, sitting, sit, getting seated on the planes and talking to customers and everything. And they're like, we don't do that here. <laughs> That's <laughs> He's not doing very modern things. Yes. Yeah. They're things that we do now in many companies, you know, mm-hmm. focus groups, right? He's yep. kind of doing an early form of focus group. In a way, you could almost say that he was ahead of his time. Very good ideas that others are not prepared for in the same way that pets.com you know, having on an online store mm-hmm. that sells and ships is a great idea. It was just at the wrong time. Yeah. It would failed. You, so would you say, I'm going to throw the question back to you that you asked me last time. Would you mm-hmm. say he's a transformative leader? <laughs> In this particular case, I would say no. However, I think that he could have been. Mm-hmm. I think he had the ideas and if he was able to carry them through the company, like you were saying, you know, starting at the top and reverberating that tone Mm -hmm. down through the entire company, then yeah, he would have been incredible. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And and I think that's an astute point about, uh, you know, right idea, wrong time. I think that's a very common theme throughout history with businesses, ideas. We've seen that a lot with people in history too. They, bring an idea to the table and uh, the political or religious parties that presided at the time were not having it. You know, it's a very common theme of just being in the, being in the wrong place for what you're bringing to the table. Yeah. Yeah. Wrong time. Yep. Um, And yeah, and then your MBA syndrome. (laughs) That's pretty funny to me. (laughs) I really like that. Um, Because, because we were talking about that before, you know, this stigma that exists about MBA students that, you know, you go to school for two years and then you come out and you're like, I know it all now. I I, I am the business expert. I will solve your problems. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just so funny that that was like a trope back then, too. Well, maybe Something it wasn't a trope. Changed. Maybe that's where it started. You know, this... this uh, MBA, the uh, idea of MBA syndrome. Yeah. Not to knock our MBAs, but, you know, there is some humor in that. I mean, it's definitely a stereotype. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's, you want fresh blood to come in. You want new leaders with new ideas. Right. And there are ways to incorporate that. Having a wave of them come in against this very conservative old guard. Even if all, let's just say all their ideas were great, uh, this old guard is not want to change. And so overwhelming them with a swarm of MBAs right. is not <laughs> going to produce a conducive environment. Yeah. Yeah. They're not going to want to change to whatever the quote unquote better way is. Yeah. You really need, you need someone who can bring, you know, it's a difficult balance because you think how, how would they have done this, but you need someone who can bring those 
fresh ideas maybe as a liaison um, that speaks the language of the faded aristocracy, you know, um, who can actually relate to them, but is able to sway them in a way that, that a new grad from Stanford or wherever just can't because they're, they're too young. Um, and it certainly was a culture of prejudice against uh, anything that was out of the norm, the Pan Am norm. Um, even like you said about Halaby, it was like he he actually was very much versed in aviation. He wasn't versed in Pan Am aviation. That was yeah. why they hated him. <laughs> he was an outsider. <laughs> yes. he's, he's a politician. He's not an airman. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's too bad. I could see him being great. Yeah. Yeah, a good leader put in in a in a bad bad spot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah a lot of potential. But we're going to see how Seawell does in the next episode. All right. Well, I'm excited for that. And I hope all of you are too. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. All right. See you then. Mm-hmm.